Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the clean, crisp mountain air to my dense urban smog. Jordan Crook. That's right. Hey, Jordan. So another episode of Found, everyone's favorite podcast, where mm-hmm. we tell the stories behind the startups and we tell them with the help of the actual founders of the startups. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you think we should just like recount these just people's cut stories? cut those guys out. Like, I'm, I wonder how she started. Maybe it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a different kind of podcast. I think we should do that. It's a ARG, like an alternate reality game type universe building thing that we'll do. We could do like one of those word association games too, where like I give three words and then you yeah. give three words. So we're telling the story in tandem. It's basically just bad improv that nobody wants to hear. Terrible so. improv. Yes, and. <laughs> but luckily that's not this podcast. <laughs> so this podcast, you very much enjoy. And because you do, we appreciate it when you like and subscribe. That means rate and review in the case of podcasts, but go onto your favorite podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get them, and give us a review and leave us a comment if you want to, a written review. And, you know, we may read those on air at some point down the road. But without any further delay, let's get to today's episode. Today, we're talking to Davida Herzl, who is co-founder and CEO of Acclima, which is a hyper-local air quality monitoring startup. Basically, they can tell you what the air is like in your city at the level of the block. So you don't really have to question whether or not that applies to your particular house, because guess what? It does. Well, in the areas they cover, (laughs) which, you know. Guess what? (laughs) Air quality enthusiast. It does. So aggressive. I'm feeling aggressive today, especially when it comes to air quality. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's top of mind. We are experiencing currently one of the worst summers on record when it comes to like heat, humidity. And with that usually comes poor air quality. So Acclima, their business and their services are much needed. And here's hoping they expand even faster. And we do talk about expansion. Davida talks about where they are and where they're going. Yeah, let's hear more from her. Hi, Davida. How's it going? Good. How are you, Daryl? Great, great. So thanks for joining us on Found. We typically start these off with just giving a quick explanation of what your company is. So do you want to explain Acclima to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about Acclima and our journey. We've been pioneering an entirely new way to really diagnose the health of our air and track the emissions that are changing our climate. And we've done this by developing a new kind of technology and methodology for measurement that enables us to understand you know, all of these really critical pollutants that are both affecting human health and the planet at hyperlocal scale. So at block by block resolution and at the scale of entire cities, entire states to really generate the data and analytics to help us address climate changing pollution and the pollution that's also creating you know, a massive health epidemic. Yeah, great. So I think this might have come up on a previous podcast and remind me if this is here or if I heard it somewhere else. But like one of the things that I think that's changed over the years is we used to hear a lot, especially when we were younger, I guess, there was a lot of talk about air pollution and how bad air pollution was. But the conversation has changed over the years around what that kind of entails and what that means. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your thoughts on that or how your company has approached that. Because we used to be concerned primarily, I think, with smog and sort of like 
quality of breathing, air for breathing for people living in cities. And now we think about it, right. I think, in terms of like things that are, you know, capturing carbon, right? And keeping carbon trapped in the atmosphere or right. whatever. So what's changed there? And has your company had to evolve over the years? Because you've been at it now for what, a decade or something. But Not a decade. Yeah. 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 This, is, this is really hard tech and a really hard space. And Finally, a lot of momentum around climate, but really been pushing towards this moment for a while. But what you just mentioned is exactly why I started Aclima. Mm. So human beings are really funny. If you think about ourselves from if you like you look at Earth from space, you realize there's just this like really thin little blue layer of air that sustains life. And we have a really sort of small window of habitability mm -hmm. in that layer of air. It's like a few literally thousand feet of air that are breathable. And we're funny because we're like fish in the ocean that don't know what water is. And so we kind of like think about climate change and air pollution and all of these things like they're separate. Right. But really the same emissions that are going into the climate and are changing the health of our climate at a global scale, those same emissions go into our lungs and are affecting human health. And so part of the reason that I started Acoma was like, I couldn't fathom how we were going to deal with the climate crisis without really understanding these two critical things. Where is pollution coming from at the local level and who is it impacting? And so this disconnect between greenhouse gases and air pollution and health and climate change, like it's kind of a false division mm. because it's the same emissions that are impacting us, our health and the climate. And we now know that, you know, and we used to think about smog and air pollution in a kind of a different way. Mm -hmm. But fast forward a decade, and one of the things that has happened over the course of the decade is that there's been an explosion of science that now shows that even very, very small levels of pollution can impact everything from, you know, in utero development of fetuses. It can impact Alzheimer's. It impacts even propensity for violence in cities. Mm. It has huge impacts on our health and our long-term viability. And so when I started ACLM, I was frustrated that we were talking about climate change like it was something that was far, far away mm -hmm. and happened only on a global scale. But the fact of the matter is it's impacting us every single day and creating huge consequences for our long-term health and viability as a species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like today we're obviously we're in the middle of a heat wave across a lot of the country yeah. here in the U.S. And like, right. you know, I looked at my weather app and it said severe heat and it also said air quality like plus two or something. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't really know what that means, that means. exactly. Mm -hmm. And I know that I take my dog out and it's really hot. I don't feel like it's difficult to breathe other than it's really hot. But I do agree that there obviously has been a shift in the way we think about some of these things, because I remember as a kid, oh, smog is bad. But I was right. like, I don't how, you know, like right. I it just doesn't seem to matter all that much. And then I remember talking to a guy who built a this is not even nearly as sophisticated as what you have going on at Aclima. And it was 10 years ago and I don't think it still exists, but it was like an alarm clock in your bedroom that also tells you air quality. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really get why anyone would buy that or why it mattered until he was like, yeah, my daughter has eczema. Right. And it matters because like knowing the difference between just a few little things can make yeah. the difference between her having really bad eczema that day yeah. or not and mm. lets us know how to handle it. Right. And so I think people are so much more clued in now mm -hmm. as to how that kind of stuff, even on a minor scale and on a big scale, affects their health. Right. So like, have you seen that reflected in your own business and your own metrics in terms of just like people being clued in? Oh, yeah. People being clued in and not just clued in, but real demand right now mm. for the data that we're generating at a scale that just wasn't there in the beginning 
because I think there's a broad recognition now that we are in a crisis Mm -hmm. and that technology has a really important role to play in kind of meeting the moment, right? You talked about carbon capture and there's all of these different solutions. If you don't know where those emissions are coming from, how do you know where to deploy solutions? And what you were just talking about, Jordan, was like the consumer application, which is how do I as a consumer, as a a mom or a dad take care of my family. But the reason we built Acoma is that I really wanted to build the technology to actually deploy solutions into addressing those emissions because nobody should have to worry about whether or not this really basic building block of life is healthy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. And so our governments, the company, you know, big emitters, companies, like we all need to take action to reduce emissions. And Here we are in Silicon Valley. We have figured out how to quantify every aspect of human behavior on the Internet and like consumer preferences. And we can like track all of these things that lead to more buying and more consumption. But we haven't applied any of that technology to actually ensuring that we can continue to live on Earth Mm -hmm. as a healthy species. Right. And that our families, that our communities are healthy. And so we took a lot of those building blocks that have been applied in consumer and the consumer internet and said, how can we bring that all together to actually build out the data and measurement infrastructure to improve air pollution and reduce emissions so that folks don't have to worry about what their kids are exposed to. That's kind of a, it's really tragic when you think about it. So can we get into the weeds on that? Like, how do you generate this data? Is there proprietary hardware involved? Mm -hmm. Are you partnering with people who are collecting it and making it smarter? And then who are the customers who are actually kind of purchasing this data? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll share with you, maybe I'll start with a little bit of the context for why Mm -hmm. we built Acoma, like the actual technical problem that we're solving. So the way that air pollution, so that number that you saw on your app, Jordan, right, that number comes from a network of monitors that are deployed across the country by the United States EPA and all of like the local regulators. Those monitors were deployed in compliance with something called the United States Clean Air Act. And that law has helped reduce things like smog and establish some standards, not just in the United States, but those standards have become kind of the model worldwide for what's healthy, what's not, what's acceptable, what isn't. So there was a style of measurement that came into the market way back in the 70s hasn't really evolved a ton Mm -hmm. that requires very expensive, really large technology that requires a lot of PhDs to run and a lot of really expert people. Silicon Valley has not touched that hardware, right? Silicon Valley has done an incredible job of like sassifying all of these other industries. But when it comes to like the services that we all rely on for things like the health of the air that we breathe, Tech really didn't touch that space. Because that technology was so big, so expensive, so hard to deploy, we ended up with just a few monitors across the country and around the world. And so you have really sparse data, right? And so what do we know here in the tech community that a lot of data is really important (laughs) to really understanding what's happening? So what we really tried to figure out was, okay, in order to really drive change, you know, I'm an entrepreneur by DNA. I grew up in an environment where like measure what you manage was the mantra I was like, okay, we cannot deal with climate and air pollution if we don't have more measurement. Mm -hmm. And when you look at greenhouse gas measurement, so what I just talked about, those are like the air pollutants that are measured by EPA. When you look at greenhouse gases, CO2, methane, the things that are accelerating the warming of our climate and are the reason why we have the heat wave right now, there's like zero Mm -hmm. measurement infrastructure. We don't know where methane is come like no there's no measurement driven way of knowing where all the methane leaks are where all the methane is escaping and methane is more powerful than co2 by orders of magnitude it can trap 
heat and accelerate global warming in ways that are really profound. And so we said a decade ago, okay, there's lots of ways to address the climate crisis. And I said, okay, data and measurement, that is where I'm going to focus. Fast forward a decade, and today, Aklama is the only company in the world that can measure all greenhouse gases, all of the air pollutants, and now toxics at this block-by-block resolution where we can say, here's the sources, here's where it's coming from. Here, federal government, you're deploying billions of dollars into climate, here's where it goes. So having that data to enter into kind of a data-driven improvement process is really important. And the way that we do this It's really hard tech and our stack is full stack. So it's, you know, we've developed the hardware, the miniaturized, you know, sensing technology, the cloud infrastructure, all of the software to process and make sense of the data. It's all, you know, an integrated stack. And the hardware that we developed measures multiple different pollutants. It does it with very high data quality. And one of the things that we discovered in our science was that pollution is actually hyperlocal. So it can vary from one block to the next by 800%. Mm, wow. So that means that you could not possibly deploy enough stationary sensors to capture all of that variability. Yeah. So we came up with this idea. We said, okay, well, let's take the sensors to all of the different blocks. And so what we did was put sensors on fleets of vehicles. And as those vehicles are driving through city streets, we're taking measurements every second. And all of that data is getting stitched together into these incredible maps that actually tell us where's the pollution, Who's being impacted? What are the potential sources? And so that just completely changes the game for climate action. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think when I was researching for this podcast, I looked it up on our site and I remember covering in like 2019, there was a partnership with Google, right? Which makes sense because obviously they already have fleets of vehicles just patrolling cities constantly. Mm -hmm. So how important is like sort of real time? Is that a key feature? And do you strive for that? Or is that something that you can do? So we can do Mm. what we started with was kind of the hardest problem, which is how do you achieve spatial scale? How do you actually like understand what's happening everywhere? Yeah. And a lot of people think about real time data and real time. So, for example, like during the wildfires, really important to know what's happening in real time so that you can take protection, you can protect yourself. But when it comes to actual emissions reductions, like the actual process of reducing emissions so that we're protecting the public and planetary health, you need to know what are the persistent sources, not just like a one-time event, Mm -hmm. but where are, you know, for example, in gas pipelines, where are the leaks showing up again and again? And now you can go and dig up that street and invest however much money to actually fix that problem. Or if to look at, for example, the persistent sources from places like ports and understanding just how severe is the problem so that you can then take that data and shape a whole plan to investing in electrification. Mm -hmm. So our data is much more about like the systemic sources that are causing these massive issues. So that then, you know, you asked earlier about our users. When you think about climate action and who's responsible for reducing emissions, it's literally every sector of the economy. And so we started with government because government has a huge role to play. And so we started with the regulators, with the agencies, like the local EPAs that are responsible for actually managing air pollution. So we started there, but we are now focused on industrial use cases. And so we have utilities and some of the biggest emitters that are actually emitting Mm -hmm. these gases and pollutants who are now are under a ton of pressure to reduce those emissions. And they're saying, we don't know where they are. Help us find them. And then also working with like local governments. And we have a lot of other applications. We're exploring, you know, right now how the data can be repackaged for the financial markets and financial services industry to better understand climate related risks associated with emissions. So a lot of applications for this kind of data. 
For sure. When you're talking about the emitters being a customer, was that they reluctantly came to you over time because they felt they were forced to? Or did you have any? Yeah. Because it, it seems like a thing now where people are like preparing for the, and especially because you partnered first with government. So it's like, oh, wait, like there's a need to be accountable and there's actually a means to be accountable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or did, did some of them come proactively? Like, were there anybody who was like, oh, like, oh, we should get ahead of this and we want to yeah. do our part? Or was it all kind of like, well, we got to do this? Yeah, it's it's all well, we got to do this. Um, so, you know, so we've been when it comes to the, the business. So our business model, we're like a satellite constellation, but on mm-hmm. the ground. Yeah. So we deploy all of these sensors and then we continuously generate all of this data and then we monetize it across different verticals. And that's also part of like our theory of change is that everybody's working from the same information. It's easier to make collective progress. For sure. And so with the regulatory and government application, yeah, it changes the game when you know that government agencies are now have transparency. Transparency begets transparency. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. when the government agencies can see those emissions and at the local level, state level, there's a lot of new pressure on emitters to reduce those emissions. The fact that there's already information available brings those folks to the table. They know that government agencies are also working from this data. And I think not only is there a lot of like new regulatory pressure, but the investor community and the public are also having a huge impact on the likelihood that, you know, companies are now seeing this is part of like my license to operate beyond just kind of what's required of them in a lot of these new regulations. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're like a satellite network, but on the ground. But I mean, we have been talking a lot to space companies recently who are working on deploying hyperspectral imaging, which sounds like it could do a lot of this even now fairly high resolution because of changes in the government's regulations. Does that compete with your business or is that complementary to your business? Or how do you think of those? Yeah, completely complementary. So Hmm. one of the things and when you look at a lot of the satellite work, right, it is spectral, it's optical. One of the things that satellites will be able to do and they're getting better at this is sort of identify. So in the case of methane, for example, or in the case of like the different pollutants, identifying like big sources, it's harder for them, much harder for them to capture that hyperlocal variability. Literally that like not just block to block, but identifying something within five feet of the source and characterizing what that source is. So one of the things that satellites don't have today is ground truth to better calibrate their information. And so we're actually in conversations with a lot of satellite companies about how we can help them better ground truth their data. And at the end of the day, come up with much better understanding of what's happening with all of these different types of measurement approaches. It's not gonna be just one that's gonna figure this out completely. And you have to remember, right? A satellite has to go through the column of atmosphere Mm -hmm. where our measurements are literally down at the human scale, like in those first six to 10 feet, like right at the source. So, you know, we're, we're kind of the bottom up measurements. They're doing kind of the top down measurements. Cool. Daryl's almost 10 feet. So that, you know, yeah, I'm up there having to look through the atmosphere. I have a very like (laughs) Jordan-esque question to throw into the mix. So buckle up. (laughs) It feels like what you're doing is on a very like enterprise-y scale, like where the needle needs to move the most. And we've been talking mm-hmm. about like shifting perspectives and something that I've noticed lately, and maybe like Daryl, you could agree or disagree. I'd be interested to know what you think. But like, I think it's come to light more and more that the major players in emission and climate change aren't whether or not you're using a plastic straw in your Starbucks cup right. or whatever. Right. And so there's this exactly. almost it's not quite apathy, but it's like this thing where it's like, oh, well, what I do doesn't really matter. But maybe where mm-hmm. I buy from does. Right. Like mm-hmm. in the businesses yes. I support. And so is there a piece of this, maybe if not now, then in the future, 
where like I as a consumer, because my straws don't really matter, <laughs> can look at Acclima data and understand better that Nike is a better choice than Adidas or that the Ford is a better choice than the Subaru or whatever to help me make sure that I'm making choices that are in line with what's best for the planet. Because right. that's harder to find, right? And like, come it's by, you're really doing hard. a lot of research as a consumer if you're really yeah. trying to be like sustainable. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I felt like consumers were kind of getting the wrong message. Mm. It yeah. was like, it's like, it's on you. It's like, what do you mean it's on me? It's not on those individual choices. It's right. in our collective understanding of where are the biggest emitters? Where are the biggest levers from, or like who you vote for has yeah. a yeah. It's accountability rather. It's accountability. Yeah. And so it's about the public being sufficiently well-informed to create that accountability. Right now right. you can go, if you're in the Bay Area, you can go to air.health and you can type in your address and you can see at your address, what are the persistent levels of pollution that you're exposed to? So if you go into, there's like a middle block, if you click there in for PM 2.5 in West Oakland and you click on that example, you'll see that if you are somebody who lives directly in proximity to that freeway corridor, you are exposed to levels of pollution that are far above even the EPA threshold for what's healthy, like oh, beyond yeah. the EPA standard. The WHO has defined the standards much more aggressively, looking at all of the recent health science. And so orders of magnitude beyond sort of the WHO standard. And what you see is like, wait, policymakers didn't take into account that if you allow all the diesel trucks to go through this particular route and you put housing right up against that freeway corridor, mm -hmm. you're literally poisoning all of those kids that live there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so all of these different parts of the system have kind of been invisible to us collectively. Right. And that's why I was so frustrated because it's like, yes, let's make those personal choices that we can live with. Like I cannot drink out of a plastic straw just because I know what that means, right. but it's not, the needle is not going to move there alone. We need to be sufficiently well-informed to elect the right people, to put pressure on the companies that are, you know, as investors, like go look at your 401k and see who's in that portfolio and mm -hmm. demand that the people that are in the companies in that portfolio are meeting a much higher standard when it comes to emissions reductions and climate action. And that is where I think the story just wasn't told to the public. Data has a big role in creating a system of accountability and transparency. So that's an essential part of why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. So I have a question about that where kind of like taking the nefarious case, I guess, right? Like mm -hmm. if this data is available and I'm a real estate developer or maybe a city planner who is like not necessarily on the side of the lower income tax brackets like doesn't this impact that whereby you kind of see where the impact is worse and you just like avoid doing developments in that area or right. you like it gives them kind of more ammo to carve up the city in ways that emphasize inequality but yeah. i suppose on the other side too it, it informs better political right. action but how do you think about that yeah so the other reason I started Aquama is that when you actually look kind of under the hood of the numbers in terms of exposure, who's exposed to air pollution, Yeah, you see that in the United States, because of a lot of people don't know this term, but there was something called redlining. So in the 1930s, after the you know depression, the federal government wanted to help accelerate homeownership. And so they created these standards for who could qualify for a loan. Mm -hmm. Basically, black and brown communities were excluded. And so the country was, there's literally red, like a map that was written, developed by the federal government that has all of these red lines that say, if you live on this side of the red line, you qualify for a loan. If you have these characteristics, if you're on this side, you don't. Mm. And so what ended up happening is that the land that was 
redlined, was less expensive. All of the communities of color are there. And then all of the sources of pollution, the factories, the freeways, everything got put there too. Mm. And so what you see, and so we just launched, you know, the initial results of, you know, some mapping that we've been doing here across the entire Bay Area. And what you see over and over and over again, it's this pattern of disparity. Communities of color are exposed to much higher levels of pollution in places like Alameda, up to 70% more NO2 wow. than white communities. Across the board, over 50% disparity for you know things like NO2. And so that means that you know when we think about disparity and equality, it means that if you're a kid that grows up in that community where you already have a lot of other you know things against you, literally the air that you breathe every day is pushing back your starting line because you're going to have asthma, you're going to miss more days of school. And so by the time you graduate from high school, you're starting in a completely different place than people who literally are up the hill, you know, in the Berkeley Hills, right? Mm -hmm. So this has really profound implications. And so showing that, actually visualizing that with data is really critical to understanding those disparities. And here's where I'll talk about the policy context. But, you know, in New York, where we're deployed, we just made a big announcement that the entire state of New York has adopted ACLIMA to support implementation of their climate law, which is the boldest piece of climate legislation in the country, very aggressively driving down emissions. And one of the really innovative things that they did was to say, okay, we know that there are these communities that are harder hit by pollution, and we're actually going to put them at the center of our law. And we're going to mm -hmm. go and generate data in all of those communities and then prioritize emissions reductions there while we're looking at this kind of economy-wide reductions so that we're making our state, our society, our communities, not just healthier and, you know, more resilient to climate, but also more fair. This right. is, you know, this basic right to clean air is kind of, I mean, none of us can live for more than a few minutes without it. And so right. there's a lot of really exciting policy innovation that's happening that is getting at what you're bringing up, Daryl, which is like, how do we make sure we're not making a worse problem? Mm. Policymakers are directing money into those communities first to address those disparities, which are you know really terrible. Yeah, policymakers can be assholes too, though. They can, but it sounds like what was actually happening <laughs> totally. was like policymakers and industrials were being assholes with the knowledge that like they know this is going on. Yeah, no one it, will ever it, know. They can just be like, prove it, right? Because right. yeah. there was no numbers or data to back it up, and now right. there is. Now so it's is. like, oh, we can. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and now the laws are saying you have to use this data to shape yeah. how you're going to respond. You can't just pretend that these things aren't happening. Right. Or make like gut choices, yeah, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. Right. So let's talk because like clearly Acloma and yourself are very mission driven. And that seems that's comes through in everything that you've said so far. Mm. But there's so many things about running a business that like <laughs> are superfluous to your mission. They're just problems that arise or challenges or there's math and money involved. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges that you've had over the past 10 yeah. years or so as a founder, just trying to get this going? You know, the tide seems to be changing a lot in your favor, but I'm mm. sure it wasn't always the case early mm -hmm. on. No, it was not. And when I started, the clean tech bubble had just popped and right. so investors oh, investors did not want to hear about climate or the environment literally you know like it was a no before you even said anything yeah and so no it's been super hard <laughs> a really hard road and has taken a long time i mean i had to bootstrap the company with revenue until about 2018 when we announced our series a Wow. And bootstrapping is hard in general. Bootstrapping when you're building really hard, hard tech, tech and yeah. science is like, you know, grueling. So I think as a founder, 
yes, everything we do is because of mission. What I really wanted to build was a business where every single dollar we made advanced our mission. And we're there. Like every single dollar that comes into the company is actually driving impact. And being at that place, getting to that place, I consider like one of our greatest accomplishments at Acloma and building a business model that is financeable by venture because we don't sell hardware. We are a SaaS business. It's about recurring revenue. And because our data is driving long-term change and is being, you know, is needed to kind of understand how things are improving over time, that is inherently a recurring revenue business. But getting to this point was an incredibly challenging journey. I mean, you guys know the numbers, right? I mean, there's so many things that were against us from the get-go. Nobody wanted to talk about climate. Mm -hmm. When it comes to being a woman founder, it's not until recently that there's more investors focused on increasing the disparities there. But 2% of venture capital goes to women, half a percent to women of color, and like less to like women solving really hard tech problems, right? So yeah, I think everything was hard. I mean, there isn't anything that wasn't incredibly challenging (laughs) in terms of getting to this point, convincing investors that like, you know what? We do have to work with government. Right. A lot of VC historically has been afraid of government, you know, as a customer. And that is just such a failure from my perspective of Silicon Valley when we're sitting on all of this incredible technology that can solve our huge societal problems. Like we've got to find a way to serve government. And thankfully, I'm I'm Well, we can just leave them out if you're a right. true libertarian, right? We'll There's build that, our own right. island. Yeah, yeah, we'll go build our own islands, <laughs> which, you know, or start another planet. Yeah, start another yeah, planet. Start another planet. Even we'll easier. Start another planet. Yeah. <laughs> just create another atmosphere. Terraforming Mars. We can do that in like yeah. 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> totally. Done. So you referenced kind of the early days. So I am curious, like how it all started. You know, you mentioned a few different reasons, like why you started the business, but like, how did it happen? Like, how did you get into the business of entrepreneurship to begin with and then pick this idea specifically? Yeah. So it's funny because like none of these things are like a single light bulb moment, right? It's a lot of experiences that kind of get you to start something and commit to something for a really long time. And that's the power of mission. Like if you know that something has to exist for the benefit of society, like it's much easier to commit to that for the long term if you're really clear about what that is. But yeah, so I grew up in Southern California in San Diego. I'm the oldest of four and grew up with parents who were both entrepreneurs. All of my siblings are entrepreneurs. My grandparents were entrepreneurs on both sides. So I always say like I'm an entrepreneur by DNA. And when I graduated and so I went, you know, went to college, went to law school. And when I was in law school, I knew that I was never going to practice. And so it was a completely different relationship to law school Mm because I was there to learn how do the rules get written? How do you protect and create IP? You know, all of the different aspects of corporate law. Like I was in law school thinking about how I was going to pull all of those things into the business I would ultimately create. And it was so funny because when I graduated, you know, I would hear like all of my friends and big pressure was like, where are you going to practice? Mm -hmm. And a year before graduating, my parents were like, no, what are you going to build? And so (laughs) and so at that point, thinking deeply about climate change, because it was really starting to enter kind of our shared awareness at that point and was really inspired by this mantra that I grew up with around measure what you manage Mm. and spent a lot of time really trying to understand why is it that we're all operating kind of in the blind when it comes to climate? Like, why aren't things moving? Why is the message, you know, that you shouldn't buy plastic straws? Like, why aren't we building a better set of tools to deal with this? And so spent a ton of time, two years, just exploring the problem space, maybe like three, actually, Hmm. before I actually came on the idea for Acloma, but did a lot of really significant research to understand what the gap was, got into like the labs at EPA and the labs at NOAA and like would just like cold call, Hmm. you know, people left and right to really get my arms around 
where the gap was and what I could do to solve it. Nice. Did you go out and try to fundraise before doing the bootstrap? And that was... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I actually, crazy, I kind of landed on, did have this kind of light bulb moment where I realized, okay, there's this thing, it wasn't called IoT at the time, but you could connect sensors to the internet and you could kind of fill this gap, right? And there was a lot of really cool stuff happening in universities. I think people were starting to do like weather stations and connect, and like yeah. that was the other side of it, right? Like the yeah, like wonder, you know, weather underground yeah, and like yeah. all of these different projects and companies and... If you like went to the universities, like professors were like playing with this concept of like, oh, my God, what would happen if you could connect all these millions of sensors to the Internet? Cisco and like all these companies early on had this big idea of, you know, oh, my gosh, how you know, what would it be to create? I think Cisco had something called planetary skin, hmm. like in the early 2000s. And so people were kind of getting this idea that, wow, if you connected sensors to the Internet, you could suddenly create this new layer of information. So when I had that idea, incorporated the company, and then it wasn't until 2010 that the technology, cloud computing, all of this stuff was becoming mature enough to actually go do it. And so I did try to raise from like angel and seed investors and it was impossible. Mm. You know, and I also like have empathy. It was kind of a crazy idea, right? right. <laughs> like, uh, And I said, okay, I'm just going to prove that we can do this. And instead of raising money, found customers to actually sign on. We had no product, had no team, had no office. I was still down in San Diego, but we were able to enter into a major contract with Google to actually deploy a sensor network indoors wow. across their building portfolio. And that is when I moved up to San Francisco. And with that initial deposit is how I started hiring my team. Nice. We've heard of a few people who do the, like, we sold the thing and then we had to build <laughs> yeah. approach, right? Yeah, but, right. Uh, they put me through a ton of diligence to make sure that, you know, yeah. I knew what I was doing. So, but still, yeah. Is it, but it wasn't nerve wracking for you? Like, what were you completely. like? Completely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, completely nerve wracking. What's crazy is that that hardware that we, you know, and at the time, like, there was like the beginnings of Nest, like all right. of this new internet connected, you know, devices. And they had so much funding, right? Because like consumer applications. So one, we were working in climate, we were working with like big enterprise, and then also had an interest in working with government. And meanwhile, the companies that were getting funding were the consumer gadgets, yeah. right? We had none of that, but we bootstrapped and figured out how to do it. And the very first units of hardware that we built are still operating today. Wow. Like 10 years later, still generating those same devices, still generating incredible data. Google doesn't have them in their buildings anymore, but we deployed them because we shifted into the outdoor uh -huh. space. But we actually deployed those sensors in a major research study in Europe where they're studying air quality in classrooms across like several hundred classrooms. They're still generating incredible data a decade later. Wow. So the hardest working prototypes in, in the valley. That's terrific. <laughs> yeah, because you could say for that, I mean, I remember well that wave of consumer gadget startups and there was quite a few of them. And it was like yeah. it was the hardware is hard era, but also like people are actually building stuff. But yeah. what you can say for most of those, they don't exist anymore. <laughs> like, I mean, right. maybe they've been subsumed. If they're lucky, they've been subsumed into subsumed. a larger organization. Right. But yeah, but know. most of them don't. Yeah. And the value that they created was very sort of short lived. Mm -hmm. There's a few of them that have gone on to do good things. But yeah, it was a really noisy time. And so much money was going into them. Yes. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's kind of the same on the software side, because there was a lot of there was the consumer apps boom as well, right? right? Which is yeah. also questionable value here and there. But yeah. the thing when you were talking about the air quality sensors, specifically indoors, I was thinking of like 
my echo bead and this combines both topics but my echo bead now has that and so mm-hmm. i notice every time i do the instant pot i like release mm-hmm. the instant pot and then it, it's like the air quality in your house is terrible get out of your house <laughs> right, right. it's like i don't know what happened but yeah. get out of there right yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. do you have a gas stove no we don't have a gas uh, stove okay. i know I'm, yeah yeah that releases a ton of stuff I mean, whenever you burn something, right? Right. Like, I mean, that's what fossil fuels are. Anytime you burn something, you release pollution. And what's interesting about indoor air is that because there's walls, it all gets contained. Yeah. And the concentrations can actually get much higher than outdoors. Yeah. Indoors. Yeah. That's why I'm very happy that we we built a proper exhaust fan in. We had one of the, like... The one that just puts it through a filter and then puts it back yeah. into the house. Oh, Awful. God. Don't yeah, do that. No, terrible, no one should have terrible. that. We have one that just doesn't function at all. <laughs> Every time I try to make salmon or anything that like requires a proper sear, the alarm goes off. Oh my God. And then the dog hides. <laughs> and then we try to open the doors and then the dog tries to escape <laughs> and like the salmon's burnt. It's like literally every time without fail. I don't and when you open the door, learn. one of Davida's sensors goes off somewhere. It's right, like there there's been go. a spike. Exactly. <laughs> there's, been a, there's a hot spot. There's a hot spot we at weren't George's aware house. Of these emissions. Is yeah. it salmon night? It's salmon It's a salmon night. hot spot. Yeah. <laughs> so we're almost out of time, but I do, I want to hear what is next for Acclimat? Like, what are your goals now? Are you yeah. in a scaling mode still? Are you looking at geographic expansion? What kind of things are you yeah, looking to we're do? We're definitely in a growth mode right now. So, you know, it's crazy because like we were talking about earlier, it's like all of a sudden the light bulbs have gone off yeah. that, okay, this, yeah, we have to get emissions under control and we have to protect the public from those emissions. And, you know, the issue of like disparity, like that racial disparity is also a huge driver right now. So mm-hmm. when I talk about our history, I kind of feel like that was, you know, chapter one, chapter two, and like we're opening up chapter three, which is all about impact, like getting out there, growing, generating as much of this data as possible and driving down measurable emissions reductions. And so, you know, we just announced that we're deploying across New York State, massive undertaking, yeah. super excited. And, you know, within a year, I think we'll be able to look back and actually say, here's like direct impacts that we had. So that's huge. But we're doing similarly scaled deployments across parts of the country. Right now, we're covering about 25% of the state of California will probably be at the majority of the state by end of next year. So, you know, a lot of geographic growth and expansion within markets where we already are, but also in other markets across the country, in the Midwest, in the Pacific Northwest, in the South, a lot of growth in the United States. And then globally, we are deployed with Google Street View. So Mm -hmm. we have our sensors on Street View vehicles around the world. And it was crazy because during the, we actually announced that partnership before the pandemic then because of the pandemic and shutdown orders worldwide, we actually like paused. Mm. But now we've been, you know, mapping now once the economies and, you know, all these different, you know, cities started coming back on. And so we're going to have data to show from cities around the world, which is also going to be hugely powerful to helping local customers, whether it's cities or emitters, actually reduce emissions using our data. So we're excited about the global launches as well. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to impact the lives directly of so many more people with the, uh, New York deployment alone, but with yeah, all those deployments. Huge. Well, that's great. So thanks very much, Savita, for joining us. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. I'm glad you, you know, didn't take the early difficulties and go away. I'm glad you stuck around. Yeah. It's a decade Thank and you. going strong. Yeah. And in many ways, just getting going, which yeah. at a moment when people are woken up, which is, which is kind of an amazing thing. Yeah. I'm glad we stuck it out too. So thank you. Okay, Jordan, that was our conversation with Davida. What do you think about your air quality now? Or I guess their startup and everything else that was going on there? Yeah, I mean, my feelings on my air quality 
are relatively unchanged. But it is interesting to hear how just the idea, the concept of measuring air quality came to be and how kind of like ancient and difficult and costly the existing tech stack is Mm -hmm. for that. You know, and I think that society in general is moving more and more towards like very granular information about their health, like in a bunch of different ways, 23andMe and all of these different health tech startups that come up and measure this or that food, sustainable food and healthier food. I think this is, it's cool to me that Davida started this with her co-founder 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And is still like trucking along because you could see that playing the wrong way and that timing might not be in her favor, but it's worked out and I could see things only going up from here with the infrastructure they have in place. That's kind of like sassified or more enterprise level kind of services that they're providing. So, yeah, I think it's really cool. I like learning about that. Yeah, it was cool to learn. About, I think that they're probably actually lucky that they couldn't secure funding initially and that they had to go and build a business that was sustainable from the start, that had revenue coming in and that could make money because that's probably the reason they're here a decade later. If they had gone and all the investors had been like, this is amazing. Who knows where we would be right now? I guess no one knows. So I can't really say either yeah. way. <laughs> Something that kind of excited me about this conversation when we were talking about it is the idea and this is like i'm zooming out a little bit from acclima specifically but given how the last decade and specifically five or six years has gone with just access to true reliable information it's Mm -hmm. like there's so much data out there and there are obviously people working on this but then there's also like the facebook's of the world and the congresses of the world right (laughs) that like have made it really difficult to like know what to trust and we're all working from a different version of the truth and like we talked to persephone before that's like measuring emissions and now acclima that's doing the same thing kind of for air quality. It's all interconnected, really. Mm -hmm. But the idea that like we could be moving toward like a truth industry, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but like the idea that, especially if they coalesce in some way and they like verify one another, but the idea that I as a consumer can go and look at like which policymakers voted which way, which bills had a bunch of crap stuffed in them, you know, which companies are, are polluting the earth most and underpay their workers or whatever so that like I can make informed decisions as an individual unit. Like you can't do that without truth. And it just like something about this conversation with Davida really like sparked that to me Mm -hmm. that we could be seeing some sort of wave in that direction. Yeah, for sure. I think it's when we talked to Kentaro previously, but it comes up here too, we talked about like his background in financial services and accounting. And I think that's what it is. It's like there was a time in the business world and the financial world when we reached this kind of ability to do true forensic accounting and have like actual transparency and visibility. And I think we're reaching that now for climate and air quality, thanks to things like Acclima. So it's pretty cool. It's more complicated when we get into other stuff. But yeah. yeah. But it, sometimes I wonder if we should know, because to me, this is a little bit like quantified self. What? Let's just not, let's just not, you know? Like, <laughs> No, I want to hear it. He, well, that's what I mean. Let's just not know. Like, it'll be like if we were in the Middle Ages and you would just like work until you were like 45 or something, then you would die. And no one, Incredible. no one really knew why. Imagine if they had all this monitoring tech back then, they'd be like, oh, well, we know exactly why. I mean, everything you do is atrocious for you. It's very, it's very bad for you. But like, we don't <laughs> often like learn things without taking action against them. Yeah. Look at, 
nobody knew smoking killed and then everybody figured it out and then there was a ton of action taken. No, I'm just saying like, maybe it was better when we were in blissful ignorance and we just lived a hard life and I don't think. died young. <laughs> I mean, I'm all about that, especially if our if our hands are tied, right? Yeah. Like if you can't do anything about it, but yeah, I mean, maybe I'm on that <laughs> side of things. I don't really like What's the saying? Like, the more you know, the less you know? That's right. Like, I, I hate that feeling. <laughs> I hate it. I've been feeling it since I was like 11. And I'm like, I fucking hate this. What are you... T- oh. You were just like, stop learning, brain. And it just... Yeah. Stop, like, <laughs> f- figuring shit out. Because then you just have 20 more questions and no one has the answer to, you know? Yeah. Especially growing up Christian. I was like, so where is heaven? <laughs> and they were like, well... It's not a place. I'm like, oh, well, then how are we going to live there? Yeah. And how, how do you know block by block air quality in heaven? In heaven. <laughs> yeah. Well, Acoma <laughs> expansion plans in 2023. Well, that's a good place to end, I think. Very. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> We're getting into some turf. You know? Rational and reasonable natural ending. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate and review. Please rate and review. And. You know, just like feel the joy in your heart and then do the writing that that guides you to do. I think that that's my advice for you. Thanks again. Join us every week right here for more fantastic stories and theology. (laughs) And aliens. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamets and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.